Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm sitting here with Robert O'Hearn. And we're across from Leah Kaminsky, who's coming to talk about her new novel, Hollow Boats. Welcome, Leah. Hi, guys. <laughs> and now, uh, it seems to me that this is really early in your, your, your promotion of this, this book. So I was going to hand it over all the talking to Robert, who knows your book better than you do, apparently. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> yeah. Um, and his wonderful review, which everyone should go and find on Booktopian blog, because it's a great review. Um, Rob, uh, can, we, we, can we start with you in this bizarrely, we'll just go straight to Rob and say a few words about the book and the effect it had on you? Wow. Oh, yeah. gee, I don't know where to go with this one. Let's give him some time. Just read your review out. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. okay. Just <laughs> 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 give him some time to remember what she's written. All right? So it's, it's based on the uh, true event of the expedition by Ernst Schaefer in 1938 to Tibet, which was funded by the SS, and Heinrich Himmler was the patron. And the idea was to seek out uh, the roots of the Aryan race, um, but they hid it under the guise of, of doing an expedition about seeking out wildlife, birds and the like. And Ernst Schaefer was a professor in ornithology. Um, it, that's the starting point. I, I, I just hold you there. Is this true, Lee? Yeah, he wasn't a professor yet. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> he just got his doctorate. Yeah, oh, there we go. There you now you're on. You're on. Yeah. <laughs> you crossed my oh, OK, there we go. But yeah, absolutely. It was it was a kind of very harebrained. Well, when I first came across it, I thought it was a very harebrained idea. But How did you come across it? Oh gosh, I was sort of at the tail end of researching my previous novel, The Waiting Room, which I kind of dived into the bowels of um, researching the Holocaust and World War Two from the point of view of the victims, and uh, then came across. I was looking very much. I'm, I'm a GP, so I was looking very much at the role of doctors in war. And, you know, doctors were sort of very, very high up in the Third Reich and, and responsible for a lot of the atrocities. So looking at the morality of that really fascinated me. And, and because I've got a science background, it wasn't far to leap to look at what scientists were doing. And I think I was just researching and I came across um, Ernst Schaefer and, and the whole notion, this is my main character, and the whole notion of this expedition of Nazi scientists to Tibet and... and the main thrust behind the expedition was for them to be looking for the true origins of the Aryan race. So I'll go into that a bit later. But what it, what this whole notion did is brought together all of a sudden all of my interests. This whole story of Ernst Schaefer, his life, and and the different it sort of brought together all these fields of pseudoscience because. Oh gosh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is, this is a digital recorder, so we can go for a long time. Okay, great, yeah. great. We've lost them already. Uh, <laughs> so science and uh, the morality of scientists, pseudoscience, fake facts. It was a very contemporary story too for what's happening today. Um, animals. Uh, I'm, I'm a passionate animal lover, so uh, the role of you know, animal rights was really important to me and the role of women and, and what happens with women uh, in situations of war or, you know. Um, so, so that brought all, all the threads that I was interested in together in the one story and I was just hooked and had to go, you know, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, by the way, and had never wanted to read anything. So the waiting room took me to sort of darkness of, of reading about what happened to the victims and here I was. <laughs> I promised my kids I'd be writing about verandas and blowflies in my next book, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
um, I sort of felt a moral obligation to try and figure out the the other, and and this this fine divide between good and evil doesn't exist. I mean, I think we've we've all got the potential for both. So for me, it was really important to see where did this scientist, this guy Earthshaper, who grew up in the forests of Thuringia in Germany as a bird lover and an animal lover. Where did he go wrong? Where, where did he cross the line? And where did he compromise his morality for the sake of his career? Um, so this story completely captured me and obsessed me. Yes, it's, it's a, it's a, a, <laughs> I, I, I love that idea that, that, that the children are innocent and it's bit by bit that somehow people take a wrong course and become something other. Uh, well, well, also, I mean, you know, it was the top scientists in Germany. I mean, all, every, all the artists went to Italy and France <laughs> and, and all the top scientists um, gravitated to Germany. And so you're not just, you're, you're talking about the creme de la creme who really struck a Faustian bargain. And just mm. by coincidence, my uh, character, um, his favourite book was Goethe's Faust. And even on, in the wilds of Tibet, he had a worn copy of Goethe's Faust in his pocket. So obviously I had to reread, reread Faust. And, and uh, yeah, so... Did he was conscious of it? Of the Faustian bargain. Mm. I've read so much material. One thing was sure about Ernst Schaefer, he was a manipulator. And so after the event, um, he got off pretty scot-free. Uh, he knew how to navigate and... and on the, the Nazi tribunal said that on the whole he'd done more good than he had bad. But I think <clears throat> I think he was pretty aware of what he was doing. Yeah. But the interesting thing, I mean, you know, we can talk about this as historical fiction and because uh, the story is based in truth. The characters that I've used are true characters, all his team members. There was an anthropologist called Bruno Vega who was a very, very bad man. Yes. Um, you know, I've got Himmler and Goering in there. The two characters that allowed me room to breathe as a novelist, um, one was his first wife, Hertha, which in all of my research, and it was extensive, um, I couldn't find anything about her. She'd been written ask, out of history. Because I, I went looking to see if, if I could find her. Nothing. Nothing. She's been wiped out. I found a photo of her father, and I found just as my... Um, manuscript was going to typesetting my husband doubles in genealogy and he suddenly came up with her death certificate and that's all I've been able to find about Hertha Volz which was Ernst Schaefer's first wife so that gave me um, the possibility to work with her as as I guess as his moral conscience here he is and they've grown up together so here they are going from an innocent childhood love of nature passionate friendship and and he's gone off in one direction, and and when they meet again, he's gone to America to work. And when they meet again, uh, and fall in love again, they're two different people. So I was very interested to work with Hertha and see what if I did a what if with her. Um, what would happen with a woman pre-war, you know, mid nineteen thirties Germany? What would her trajectory be if she's got a moral conscience and and everything that's going around her? She can see what's happening. What and but you love this man that you've known since you were a child. Um, so that really fascinated me. And then we come to Panda. 
What should I say about panda? <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, tell us about where panda came from as, as far as panda as an element in the story is really an un, unexpected and really beautiful thing in the middle of this book. But where did panda come from as, as an inspiration? Panda is actually a four-month-old taxidermy panda in the Academy of um, Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And he was uh, the second panda to be shot in the wild by a wild by a white man. Um, and Ernst Schaefer happened to be that one on a previous joint American-German expedition. And he was working at the museum in Philadelphia. And on my last book tour in the States, I happened to be there and was doing some research on the book and, and discovered that the panda that he'd shot is actually in a diorama. So I went around outside of the library and found my four-month-old stuffed panda staring at me. And yeah, it's going to sound really soppy. I, I burst out crying. <laughs> and I really, there was something very weird going on there, and I just really connected with this little stuffed panda and uh, kind of, you know, took notes. And went, I went down to the basement there too. The curator there um, showed me... The basement, all, all the collections that Ernst Schaefer had brought back with him from a couple of earlier expeditions, um, and and the one that I'm writing about too. And, and he pulled out these, these just masses of things, and there was a thylacine there and all sorts of things. And he pulled out one of the little yellow drawers and unwrapped some tissue paper. And oh god, this could put everyone off the book. Um, uh, there was pan the the diorama, the stuffed pandas, little toes, the bones. Uh, that just broke. The, that's when the, the notion of bones came to yeah. me, and it just broke me apart um, as an animal lover. So I, I needed to go to places that were really uncomfortable for me. You know, I needed to understand the 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 world of a hunter, the mind of a hunter, which I abhor. But Ernst Schaefer was a crack hunter. Zo you know, the bloody history of zoology. You collect specimens by hunting them. Um, so panda grew out of that, and panda. It was a bit of a writer's gambit, but the voice came, became stronger and stronger. I was sitting at Varuna, the writer's house, and his voice just kind of Ooh, down onto the paper. I'm like, who are you? And Panda had come back to me. Uh, very much a cry from the wild and, a, and a, again, a contemporary issue of uh, sustainability and, and, you know, uh, the threat of extinction of species. So for me, that, that innocent naivety of the voice of an animal, which could have gone very wrong, but hopefully your readers won't think did. I, I, it's one of those things, if you try to explain to somebody, which I did several times, I'm reading a book, and it's about this, and in the middle of it, this panda. Who is that? And they go, huh? And you go, no, 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 it's much better. It's, it can't explain. It's something you have to read. It works. It works really well. It's well, we really were talking strong. about Stephen King just before, and I actually, through a friend of mine in the States, one of the very, very early drafts that I wrote, um, Stephen King's first editor, who shall remain nameless, um, who's now sort of an elderly gent, um, agreed to take a look at the manuscript, and the first thing he said to me is, Panda's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> this is more an Indiana Jones story. And I'm like... I'm not getting rid of Panda. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not going to be Stephen King, am I? No, it's, <laughs> there's so many layers in this book. It's about so many different things. And the, the stuff about animals and the birds. There's so many birds in the book. But there's also the, the scenes with uh, Klaus the cat. Uh, just oh. wonderful. 
Mostly. <laughs> I have to say up front, I am vegan. So if anyone's put off this podcast because they think, oh, she's just talking about hunting and that cruelty to animals, I'm vegan. I'm a crazy animal rights nut. I, you know, for me, it was the hardest thing to write, as hard as it was to write about the horrors of World War II and the Nazis and, 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 and or research all of that. I think the hardest thing in writing this book was, was writing about the poor animals. Um, and I read a beautiful book by, oh gosh, Rachel Poliquin called The Breathless Zoo, and she talks about taxidermy and, 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 and what we've done with memorialising animals um, beyond their grave. Yeah. And, and that just took me into a whole other realm. But I ha- it was very confronting. I really had to go to places that were very uncomfortable for me to go. That's often for 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 a novelist um, for for readers reading a novel where a novelist has gone places that not only um, they do not want to go that we often don't want to go. It is that that guiding hand, and it is the bravery that we generally are drawn to in in, in writing. That's that's part of the key, isn't it? I mean, novelists should should be doing that for themselves yeah, well, that's, for our benefit. Can't go with the axe, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess I can't help myself. Yeah. Um, but there was also a lot of beauty in writing the book. I mean, I, I had applied for a Churchill Fellowship to go to Berlin and Tibet and got really close but didn't get it and was really upset. But I'm actually really thankful I didn't go. Yeah. Um, I've never been to Berlin or Tibet, and yet the, books are set, the book is set in both of those places, but it's set in the 1930s. So both of those places, the Don't Berlin and the Tibet of the 1930s, doesn't exist anymore. So yeah. I think for me, um, a dear mentor of mine, one of my father's best friends, was a painter called Jossel Bergner who died last year. And he always said to me, I never want to go to a place where I've imagined because it will destroy my imagination. And I think for me now, um, yeah, doing all the research and looking at, at all the archives for to- photographs and reading books and, you know, using Google Translate to translate from the original German from Sutherland Schrift, you know, oh, my God. Um I think I didn't need to go there. I was there. I, it was a time machine, really. What how, I was doing how long was the process? Like, when did you first? When did this idea first pop in your head? And, and now we're holding the book. I can remember the moment. Um, probably about five years. I was just finishing up um, work on the waiting room, previous novel, and I came across a theory called. I don't, I don't remember how you know. You get on wiki, and then you yeah. go down the wiki abyss, <laughs> the kind of labyrinth. And I came across a theory called Welteislehr, which in German is World Ice Theory, which what became, it was a scientific theory designed by a steam engine, steam engine engineer back in the 20s called Hans Horbinger. And it, uh, it became the, the scientific platform of the Third Reich and very popular in Germany. So what they did is that in the mid, early to mid 30s, they threw out the theory of relativity as Jewish science. Um, you know, the atom was no longer the building block of the universe. The ice crystal was, according to world ice theory. So, of course, if the according to this steam engineer, yeah. okay, you with me? Yeah, I'm with <laughs> it's you. all wacky. Um, so, if the ice crystal is the building block of the universe, of course, the moon is made of ice. And, of course, there wasn't just one moon. There were lots of moons. And so thousands of years ago, one of these icy moons plummeted to Earth. Of course, it was going to plummet to Earth over the Himalayas, which is ice because ice attracts ice. 
Okay, you with me? Yeah. And underneath the Himalayas was the city of Atlantis, duh. Okay. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> so the ice, this this is absolutely, people just bought this. There were lectures, there were magazines, there were books on it. Um, so it dislodged the city of Atlantis and out of there came the Uber mention, the, um, the, the sorry, not the Uber mention, the Zonin mention, the origin of the Aryan Nordic warrior race and came up to the earth and started interbreeding with the local Tibetans. So the whole idea behind Himmler's idea behind the expedition was if you go there and do anthropomorphic anthropometric measurements of all these um, Tibetans especially the aristocracy we're going to find the the our heritage the origins of this crossbreeding and of course if we can do that we're the true um, you know th that's the true origin of the um, Aryan race and that will give us um, claim to what they called Lebensraum to spread Germany out, the Reich out, and take over Tibet. And I mean, God, I'm telling you the short version. It was it was trippy. <laughs> so, so how do you stop yourself when you go down these rabbit holes? Because you know the research for any novelist can be you look up from your page and it's been oh five years have gone past and I've just been researching, I haven't actually written a word. <laughs> Uh, how, how do you how do you control yourself? I mean, in between in between the waiting. <laughs> I room want to say this... something that's going to be a bit controversial. I have to go to work and do a pap smear. It's like, at least you know where you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because I wear two hats, yeah. I don't really have a lot of time. So I'm very when I do have the time, I'm kind of very grounded in it. Yeah. And then I was really lucky with this book. I got a um, two fellowships at Verona and one at Bundanon. So at Bundanon, you know, you've got a friendly wombat next to you but that's about <laughs> it there's not much to do um, and that's when I do kind of the bulk of the first draft and also I, I was I was very lucky that I uh, got a contract with Meredith Kerno at Penguin Random House on three chapters and a proposal which was like terrifying but also I'm a deadline kind of gal yeah. so I think if you give me 30 years to write a novel I'll come up with the waiting room yeah. <laughs> if you give me four I'll come up with the hollow phones and you wrote the the, um, the non-fiction in between, so it hasn't yeah. really been uh, that many years yeah, for your look, publishing. Hey, John, the house is a mess. I'm not going to invite you over. No dinner parties at my house. I'm a terrible... Carmel Bird was one of my first fiction teachers, and she gave me the best pearl of wisdom ever. She said, Leah, if you want to write, give up the housework. I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> It's clean, it's just messy. <laughs> it's a different kind of prescription. But, um, the birds. Why, why the birds? The birds. Is it, is it about flying? Is it about the hollow bones of the birds that enable them to, to fly? Yeah, I mean, there's the physicality of it and the science of it in that, um, birds, that birds of flight in particular um, have their, their skeletal structure is... Um, hollow in a sense in that they can trap a lot of air which make, gives them a lift i don't know the whole mechanics of it i failed physics as we talked about before um, um but i love the metaphor of that i really love the idea of that hollowness that uh, of, of bones and you could probably talk about i haven't talked about this book very much yet so i've got to figure this out now what's it really about <laughs> this, this is perfect for book clubs because you can take different angles. <laughs> the writer doesn't know what she's talking about. Great. Go, I think this is about this, and um, then you can say, actually, it could be 
from a different angle. <laughs> this it's there's a lot of stuff that that makes you want to go. Well, I guess I wondered the, the play, not because the, you don't, didn't get it, yeah. but because you think there's even more here. Well, what I was, I think, what I had in mind at the time, I'm trying to articulate it, and I write better than I talk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really like you know we talk about birds having hollow bones. And, and as a metaphor, the, the hollowness of their bones and, the, you know, their bird brains are dumb. And you just have to read um, Jennifer Ackerman's The Genius of Birds and you know that's not true. Or you just have to look at a crow on the road. Yeah. And I thought, well, and, and people have got more solid bones, you know, full of marrow. And I thought, well, who in this story really is hollow? Who, who are the hollow ones with the hollow <laughs> um, framework or base um, foundation and... That's human beings, not animals. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> so when, when, when putting together um, a, a book with all these different parts to it, and especially with the panda bit in the, in the middle, what, what kind of um, negotiations or with, with editors and publishers and the like, as you, as you, especially something where you're taking a, you know, you're taking a bit of a risk, um, is it for writers out there now who, who haven't been published or, or are in between... Um, did you really have to stand your ground on some of this stuff, or is it was it a better relationship with the publisher? Have you had experiences where, in certain circumstances, the publisher wouldn't have let you do this? Like the, the American guy wouldn't. Uh, the yeah. editor <laughs> had a strong point on it. Yeah. Um, but Meredith was cool with it. Oh, they, Meredith Kernow and Tom Langshaw, who was my editor, they were... I have no words. <laughs> really, I'm a writer. I've got no words. And they've been supportive from the get-go. They've been beautiful. The book wouldn't be what it is without them. And they were so supportive. Um, I'll sound syrupy now. Mm-hmm. Really, they, they got it from the beginning and, and helped craft it into a better book. Um, so I've got absolutely no complaints. In my early career as a writer, um, you know, I've had, I won't mention names, I'd love to, but I won't. <laughs> uh, we're talking 20 years ago, um, someone had said to me, I was writing children's stories with, through the point of view of animals and very, I, I love magic realism. So that's sort of always been the master and margarita and yeah. you name it, I love it. Um, so I've always, without even want, being conscious of it, there's always a thread of magic realism in whatever I write. And, and the person back then said, I'm so sick of reading books from the point of view of animals. <laughs> and that's, and that, we were talking about a children's book. I'm like, okay, you've just written off the whole of children's literature, fairy tales. I'm, okay, and we parted ways. Um, and I never actually ended up writing children's books after that. It really shut me down. Um, but I, I just, I love taking risks in writing, and it, it's not a conscious thing. It's just, I guess it's what you love to read. So it filters through and it comes out in my own work. And it's a gamble. You know, I'm not, I, I kind of, I call myself a genre fluid in that I'll flip between, you know, an essay for the BBC or a, a you know, book on death and dying nonfiction or a novel or whatever. Um, but I think within the book itself, I'm also a bit fluid in, in flipping between realism and magic realism and poetry and it all kind of... Is it kind of a... Pro- pro- I'm a general practitioner, so I'll see, you know, I'll see a, a kind of ingrown toenail and then the next patient will be a, I don't know, heart attack. So I oh, wow. kind of, I love, what I love is weaving it all together. I'm not, I, I specialise in being general. Yeah. So I think I'm the same with my writing is I love to kind of 
I don't know if it works. You guys have to judge yeah, that. No, I but I works. love kind of, I'm not going to say, oh, that's poetry. That's got to go out because I'm writing a novel. Mm. Or this is historical fiction. I can't put myself into one category, which I kind of think is fun. I was wondering if, if on the, because the historical fiction, um, writing historical fiction, you can kind of feel like you're, you're manufacturing this and you're playing with a, the conceit. Yeah. And to kind of alert the reader to your knowledge of this knowledge that you're writing this thing, you then break it, smash it, and go, okay, here, here I'm doing this right in front of you. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to be honest, as yeah. an artist, uh, is that is that part of it, or is it is it just your like you like the bits, like having lots of different things? I don't think I'm aware of it. To be really, I think I'm too dumb to be aware of it. I'm like just channeling the stuff. It's like, yeah. Where's that coming? She's really dumb. Where's this coming from? <laughs> um. I'm not conscious, and yeah, I, look, I, I sat down the back of history classes, sorry, Mrs. Lewis in Form 2, Eating Twisties, um, <laughs> and was never interested in history, but this just riveted me. This, and, and I think when you're reading books that have historical content or the past in them, it, it really brings it to life. They're, they are people like, they were people like we are people now, and as a younger woman, I would have never considered that. I, you know, I remember seeing black and white photos of the war and it, it sort of distanced it. It just it wasn't me and it wasn't about anything that had anything to do with me. And it was the same with my mother's history who was a Bergen Bells and survivor. It's like it was there and I'm here. I was gonna is that a teenage thing or was that was that that is such a big issue, Mum, I'm not dealing with that. Was it was it just the ten bucks now, isn't it? Is that the going round? Because yeah. <laughs> because the way in which you describe it, I've heard you describe it and it's kind of like uh, I was a teen, I wasn't interested in her life. But it, it seems more than that to me. I think there was a huge fear. Yeah. And there still is. It's still fearful for me to go to these places because I still, you know, my, my kind of childish mind says, oh, how could people do this? People are actually good. How could people even do this? But when you look at contemporary issues, now, I mean, since then, and we've said never again, God, let's list the number of atrocities, you know, Rwanda and on and on we go. We're still in the middle of it. So I think... For me, I needed to turn around and face it and look at it, and the only way I can do that is through my writing. Um, I suppose if I lay on a psychoanalyst couch for a while, that would yeah. also help. Um, I can't <laughs> afford it. Um, so I needed to turn around. I, I, I'll tell you what actually was the turning point. I met, God, I'm name-dropping here, I met a guy called Robert Lifton in New York who's a, a very well-known psychiatrist who's written a lot about atrocity. And he, after World War II, interviewed a lot of the Nazi doctors. And that was the hardest book I've ever read, The Nazi Doctors. Yeah. But it was so important for me. He, he comes up with this concept of doubling where you can just split off from everything. You can lead your own life and go and have your, you know, decaf soy latte, why bother, and, and, and ignore that, you know, there are people in Manus Island suffering. So for me, it was very much uh, looking at myself. Like, I, I consider myself a good person. I think we all do. Then where, where is it that I go wrong? Where is it that my moral compass is, is not set on north, is, is just flailing around? Uh, where am I being a bystander and not an upstander? And I'm not saying I'm squeaky clean because I'm certainly not. Um, but that's, I think that was my motivation in trying to look at these people. And when, when we talk about women too, like, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, if only women ran the world, it would be beautiful. But then you come across 
um, someone like Gertrude Skolz Klink, sorry about my German accent, um, who uh, there's a chapter in there, my Herta, which is Ernst Schaefer's fiance. The requirement of the SS for a bride is to go to Nazi bride school. Of course. Yeah. And as a graduate of the Ellie Lucas School of Deportment, can't you tell? <laughs> um, I thought, what is this? And I started researching it. And the German woman had to be, had to meet these certain criteria, and you know, had to be the perfect German wife and breed and have perfect Aryan children. There was not a lot of room for movement. But um, so I I wrote about how to be trapped in this sort of ideal woman world. But the woman that ran the Nazi bride school was was just, I mean, if there is pure evil, she was pure evil. Um, and she was very high up in the rank and, you know, in with everybody. And, and a lot of these people I write about also got off scot-free. There's an afterword in, in the book yeah, that is probably more horrific than anything because <laughs> they just walked and some of them walked up the ladder of academia after the war. And, anyway, so it's one of those digress. things where, where you go, oh, the quality will make things better, that, but they, everyone gets the opportunity to be good and bad as well. <laughs> there's no there's no fixing that. There's going to be women on, on the right and the left. There's going to be women yeah. you know, who have extreme yeah. views on either side. You know, whatever it happens to be, there will be the whole mix of humanity. So it's across the board. It's moral choice. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man or an intellectual or a scientist. Or there's, you're always confronted with moral choice and, and what would what, what I wonder what I would have done. I don't know. Well, I feel that you mentioned menace. I feel that all the time because of the things that are going on mm. in, in my name under this regime that I'm not doing a damn thing about. Yeah, nothing. It's just happening. And you know, what? what when would I? When would I stop? When would I start doing something? What do they have to do for me to rise up? Yeah. Well, I think we all have to have compassion. We all have to do what we can, and and to say it's the same. I mean, it's not the same conversation, but the enormity of this, you know, I, I, at the moment my kids, you know, my, my, one of my daughters has finished zoology, another one's on that pathway, and, and I hear the kids saying, well, you know, big deal, I'm saving Eastern Bard bandicoots, but, you know, what's it going to make a difference in the world? But you have to do something, even, even if it's something small. I think morally we're all compelled to do something. For me, that's writing. I, I wish... You know, I, I was I had more activism in me. I guess I choose to be vegan, whatever. But yeah, like Manus Island, uh, you know, so I contribute money and I. But you know, I look at other people and what they're doing, and I feel horrifically guilty. Now, the book that made me feel a little bit better was um, Stoner, um, that wonderful. Um, what's the author? Um, Williams. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in that, this is it's a terribly sad story in many ways. But then on the by the end of it, you're going. Oh no! He, his whole existence was kind of upholding a, 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 I don't know, a cultural structure or something. He's like he's one. He's just only one one little one little nut holding holding on a screw or something. But is integral to the whole thing. You know, if you don't if you don't live your life in some and, and because of, of reading, because of writing, mm. because of, of, of representing authors and things like that, and, mm. and being in the book industry, I go. God, there's got to be a little tiny gold star for me. Not a very big one. Just a tiny little gold star for, for me in, in doing something to try and uh, and, that, and, the, and that book is is largely about that. Or in my mind, my, my yeah. interpretation of that is is largely uh, about that, that. Look, I think it's so important. And I think especially, um, you know, we say we're not activists, but I think as writers, you are an activist. 
who were the first people that were killed in, in all sorts of war situations, the intellectuals, the writers, the artists. And someone once said to me, I'd, I'd come very, very close to getting a really wonderful prize that I really wanted. <laughs> and, and the chief panellist of, of the judges said, oh, well, what's the outcome of, of your research? And I said, well, a book. And I sort of, there was a hushed silence in the room. And she said, just a book. And I said, yes. And I said, well, actually, the Nazis burnt books. It's probably not the right thing to say when you're <laughs> trying to get a really good prize. And and that was it. And I I don't know for what reason, probably because it wasn't good enough, but <laughs> I didn't get. But it, that, stuck, that struck me as like just a book. It's not just a book. Maybe it's not my book, but books are powerful. And they're a voice. And... Uh, they speak to millions of people. If Booktopia sells millions of copies of the whole life. I suppose they hang around. This is something I was, I was talking about the other day on Twitter, is how long they hang around. Yeah, well, look at Ernst Schaefer. I mean, his diaries have been sitting in the Bundesarchive. He's written lots and lots of books in German. And I don't they're dusty. I don't think anyone's kind of read them. But here comes little Leo with her <laughs> rudimentary, rudimentary German that's kind of an outshoot of Yiddish, actually. <laughs> Um, and dusts them off and, you know, gets out of Google Translate. So you don't know yeah. what impact it's going to have, but I think we need to we need to raise our voices. So, yes, I'm not, you know, on Manus Island uh, and I'm not making a difference in, in that sort of way, but for me writing is about humanity and about compassion and about not making people the other. Uh, for me, that's crucial. And if I've succeeded in reaching a few <laughs> readers with that, then great. That's what I can do in this world. There's some lovely stuff in the book that's about small things, where small choices in small bits of behaviour and domestic situations or other, where you have a choice of being kind to an animal or not being kind. So if a cat's in the way of Bruno where he's trying to get to something and he treats the cat badly, it re- not just reveals a lot about Bruno, but it's, there's a lot about this is a small step towards bad bad places. Um, and it's, it's like the whole uh, trajectory of some of the characters is that. It's just slice by slice giving away small bits of humanity and care. I think once you've crossed the line, you know, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Although I must say, just... To be au contraire to that, the Nazi, a lot of the Nazis, like Hitler, a lot of the the kind of high up Nazis were very keen animal lovers. Yes. Uh, So that doesn't always go hand in hand. Um, In fact, one of the weird things that didn't make it into the book, and I I digress, (laughs) I read about the Nazi um, dog speaking school. I can't remember (laughs) what the German word was. It existed, and it was a secret school. Uh, up in the Thuringian forests where they were teaching dogs to tap out the alphabet. It was highly funded. Hitler wanted to use these dogs for espionage because he believed that dogs had a consciousness and an intelligence and he would send them out as spies and they would tap back, you know, Jew here or whatever they were going to tap out, I don't know. Um, And this went on for, look, someone's going to Google Wiki now and say I'm wrong, but it went on for a few years, I won't, (laughs) until it just got scrapped. But... What, well, how did I get to that? Small things. <laughs> That's a small thing. But I think, yeah, I think you can very easily cross the line um, and it is in the small things that we do, I think, that shows who you are as, as a person. 
Yeah, it's it's like what Panda sees. Panda watches the people that visit in the museum, and Panda sees yeah, so different behaviours and, and says, this is going on with this person. Panda is a sentient being, and I think uh, is a mirror of reflection for everybody that comes and stares at him in the diorama. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We've, we have gone over time because of, of how enjoyable our little chat was. Um, and there's so much to talk about in this book, so it's, it, we, we sort of wandered in places. And I, I kind of wanted to go back into, um, into your other books as well, but we, 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 yeah. <laughs> they're all happy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your support. And you can get hold of Leah's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.